bro shit. It's time for some gay bro shit. Get into a gay bro shit. Let's fuck with a gay bro shit. Hey, hi, hello, bros and hoes and they's and thems and girlies and squirrelies and whirlies and twirlies and burlies and I don't know if I missed you, hated you as well. This is Gay Bro Shit, a podcast about gay fitness culture, body image, and gender, and also occasionally a podcast about the war on drugs. And you can call me Brosen2. Because I, too, have a lot of lesbian subtext going on. And I apologize, because this episode's going to be a week late. And not that any of you have set your watch by my uploads, but I was sick all week, and I could not talk. And I was not going to record when I sounded like shit, because I knew I would probably want to re-record, and that was just a massive waste of time. All right, let's get into it. So today is a big, giant hornet's nest because I'm going to be talking about anabolic steroids, and I'm going to do my best to approach this topic with nuance and balance because most publicly available information on this is entirely demonizing or largely positive, and the truth, like so many things in life, lies in the middle. I grew up in the 90s because I'm old and was very much a product of the D.A.R.E. program, which if you're not American, D.A.R.E. was drug abuse resistance education. And the aim of the program was to scare us off of all drugs. And one of the drugs that they talked, they also talked about gangs as well, but um they they did talk specifically about steroids in that program, and the way that they portrayed them was very sinister, with a lot of dire warnings about what would happen if we were to try them. But then, as I got older, I was more exposed to other sources of information, and one of the touch points for me was an excellent documentary that came out in 2008 called Bigger, Stronger, Faster by filmmaker Chris Bell. And if you haven't seen this movie, I definitely recommend it if you're interested in this topic. And it is 15 years old now, but I think it's still a great watch. I think you can find it on YouTube, perhaps, maybe not. Take a look and see if you can find that. Uh, Anyway, my intention with this conversation is to do the same thing that the movie does, which is to take an honest look at anabolic steroid usage, but update things to where we are in 2024, and specifically look at this topic through a gay male lens, but also a broader queer lens as well. But before we do that, I need to state yet again that I am not a doctor, and this is not medical advice. Just a summation of my research into the topic and the things that I've learned from listening to people with a lot of lived experience in this arena. And depending on where you live, we are talking about substances that are frequently illegal or at the very least controlled. But I also think that we as a society need to be unafraid to have honest conversations about drug use because legal status doesn't always reflect 
the societal harms or dangers of a substance. And we also know that the criminalization of drugs has largely been used as a tool to police and incarcerate people of color and poor people specifically. And to state my position up front, I think the harms of steroids have been very overblown, and I do think it is possible to use them safely under certain circumstances, but also that they are inappropriate and unnecessary for most people. But there's a good chance you're going to use them anyway, so you might as well know the real risks and results. There will also be a lot of crossover from the previous episode I did on testosterone, because testosterone is the original steroid. So much of what applies there applies here, but because there are 20 or so other commonly used anabolic agents that all have different effects and actions, there's going to be a bigger range of possible outcomes. All right, so first some definitions. Steroids, the word, refers to a compound with a specific structure of four fused rings. I'm not a chemistry major. Couldn't possibly uh, explain more than that. But they act as signaling molecules that tell your cells to do certain things. It's a pretty broad range of chemicals. Steroids are some of the most commonly used drugs in the world. But most specifically, the class of drugs known as corticosteroids that impact your immune response, act as anti-inflammatory agents, and as well as a variety of other functions. We're not talking about this class of steroid, although some of the side effects are similar, particularly uh, the psychological side effects specifically. So when we get into that, just know that a lot of that applies for corticosteroids as well. So we are talking about anabolic steroids whose function is to promote tissue growth. And they don't just make you bigger and stronger, but those are the results that we care about. The first anabolic steroid discovered was, of course, testosterone. And as we talked about previously... This was discovered in the 30s by a group of scientists in Europe, and it took them a short amount of time to figure out how to produce it and use it as a drug. And they also started to experiment with deviations of the chemical as part of the push for new drugs during this time period. And really, this was the fuck-around-and-find-out era of pharmaceuticals. Here in the West, we knew about testosterone, of course, because we were partly on the teams that have discovered it. So we knew about testosterone, but we didn't yet know about all the other derivatives that had similar effects that were being developed in the Eastern Bloc. But what we did know was that after World War II, the Soviets and other Eastern Bloc countries, Bulgaria really notably, were kicking our asses in sports that required raw strength, specifically Olympic weightlifting And the weightlifters from those countries were lifting insane amounts of weight compared to what we were able to do. So it was obvious that they were up to something. And at the time, there was one gym in Pennsylvania called the York Barbell Club, which is still around. But that that gym was producing almost all of our Olympic weightlifters. And it just so happened that... The U.S. Olympic team physician, John Ziegler, was one of these weightlifters. And after a 1954 meet in Austria, where the Americans were trounced by the Ruskies, he happens to ask one of the Russian coaches what they were doing to win. 
And after a few drinks, the Russian coach reluctantly admits that they were using some form of testosterone. So Ziegler returns home and started experimenting on himself and then also the other weightlifters at the gym. And sure enough, they all got immediately stronger. But they didn't like the side effects of straight testosterone, so he began looking around for something else. And eventually, he stumbled on a testosterone derivative called... I actually don't know if I can pronounce this. (laughs) We're going to try anyway. This is going to be embarrassing. I should have practiced this. Uh... I think it's called uh, metandianone. Sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, which they then began marketing under the name of Dianabol in 1958. Now, the history from the Eastern Bloc is a bit lost, so we don't exactly know what they were up to over there during this time. But from the Western perspective, Dianabol was the first artificial anabolic steroid. So soon enough, they became widely used by strength athletes, but it also uh, quickly discovered that some unfortunate side effects were occurring, including liver damage. And we'll get into that later, but it wasn't until 1976, almost two decades after the drug was first released, that it was banned by the Olympic committee. So we have a solid like three decades where everybody, well, not everybody, but majority of people competing in strength sports at the highest level were all openly on anabolic agents. Uh, But during this time, the drugs also began to be used widely by athletes in a broad range of sports and most notably in the bodybuilding world where it had become a mandatory tool for achieving maximum size. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the man who dominated bodybuilding competitions in the seventies before pivoting to becoming an action star, a Republican governor, a insurance spokesperson. He's admitted to using Diana ball and He's been a bit cagey about the quantities, and he's probably really downplaying his usage um, because he doesn't want to give steroids too much credit in his success. And in fairness to him, he was working out in a way that was pretty insane for most people and had a lot of natural talent and was very serious about the sport and had great genetics. So the drugs definitely contributed to his success, but to a less significant role than some people want to say. And maybe that's me being an apologist, but I just, I think that that's also generally the truth of the situation for most people. And there's a ton of history about bodybuilding during this time available. So I don't need to get granular here other than to say that basically by the late sixties, almost every competitive bodybuilder was using anabolic steroids. Uh, meanwhile, Dianabol and some other drugs that were developed later did have some legitimate medical usages. Uh, most notably, steroids were given to burn victims and elderly people to aid in tissue regeneration and reversal of muscle loss. And to this day, some of these drugs are still approved for this and some other medical purposes. Notably, in the 80s and 90s, one of the main uses of anabolic steroids was the prevention of muscle wasting in patients with AIDS. 
And while anabolic steroids did not prevent death from the disease, they certainly prolonged lifespans. And some HIV-positive people who were lucky enough to live through this era have claimed that the use of steroids was a major factor in their survival. And I was a very young adult during... Uh, very. I wasn't an adult. I was young. Uh, but I vividly re- recall the images of AIDS patients wasting away in their hospital beds until they looked like living skeletons. And this was the image we all saw during this time. And it was a degree of bodily horror I don't think we've really seen in the Western world since the end of World War II, when we discovered the nightmares of the Holocaust. So anything that could prevent this wasting away was a godsend. And this is, I think, where usage starts to become widespread among gay men in particular. Because we have one set of men who are actively sick and trying to extend their lifespans by any means necessary. And then we have a second set of men who are still quote-unquote healthy, but these men now have an incentive to look as healthy as possible to make it visibly apparent that they do not have the disease. And of course, you can't tell by looking at somebody whether or not they're HIV positive, but that was the way that the thinking went at the time, because there's a lot we didn't know. Um But these men were working out, they were having a lean, muscular look, and that was a way to telegraph their status as one of the lucky ones who didn't have the disease. And in doing so, it made themselves look like safe potential partners. Of course, many of these men were already infected and would later die of the disease, but because humans are bias-prone... This was an effective way to continue to exist in the gay world and be seen as desirable. And this is still our default desirable aesthetic long after HIV has become a manageable condition. So the gym started to replace the gay bar as the default third space for queer men. In the neighborhoods of large cities, there was always one or two gyms where the clientele was overwhelmingly gay men. And as time went on, some of these gyms took on the attributes of queer nightlife spaces with loud pumping dance music, sometimes live DJs, there were juice bars and cafes, and also cruisy spaces like locker rooms and saunas and steam rooms that kind of replaced the bathhouse to some extent. And in gay porn, the jock became the dominant aesthetic, almost certainly because that image projected health and vitality and a lack of disease. And also notably around this same time, porn stars became primarily tops or bottoms only, whereas previously most porn stars had been completely versatile. But this reinforced the dominance of the masculine, muscular male as the superior example of desirability. And we know from the body dysmorphia episode that another aspect of emphasizing muscularity in queer people was that it gave an illusion of physical safety because we were less likely to be attacked for being queer if we looked physically imposing. Simultaneously, we also had the rise of the Gay Circuit Party, which I definitely plan on doing a full episode covering, 
But these are massive multi-day parties with thousands of attendees who generally dance shirtless, often even less than shirtless. And most of the participants adopt the same muscular aesthetic. Steroid use became de rigueur to be accepted onto this party scene. And of course, we also see a strong connection developing between anabolic steroid usage and the usage of other drugs like methamphetamine, ketamine, GHB, MDMA. And it has been shown in at least one study released in 2019 that anabolic steroid users are three times as likely to use meth and MDMA than non-steroid users. Now, to be clear, I don't think there's any evidence that Taking steroids causes someone to be more likely to take other drugs. Steroids don't lower your inhibitions. So what's more likely going on there is that the type of person who is more willing to take a chance using steroids is more likely to be the type of person who would use other illegal drugs because they're less risk-averse and more addiction-prone before any drug use even comes into play. Meanwhile, back in the straight world... Uh, After a series of sports doping controversies, the U.S. Congress added anabolic steroids to the Controlled Substances Act, meaning that they were now illegal to possess without a prescription. Because they do have legitimate uses, they are not banned outright, but prescriptions became much less common and usage moved underground. Up until this point, athletes and bodybuilders were using steroids that had been legally prescribed by a licensed physician, even though, of course, shady doctors do exist. At least it had the veneer of medical supervision. But now steroids had become something you acquire via a dealer instead, which introduced any number of other potential risks and complications to their usage. Meanwhile, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry stopped making and supplying most previously available drugs. And as of 2024, the only currently legal and available steroids in the U.S. are testosterone, methotestosterone, anadrol, and halotestin. And there are some others that are still legal but are no longer prescribed or distributed here, such as primobolin and anivar. And once these drugs became no longer easily prescribed and stopped being legally manufactured, then the research into their effects largely stopped as well. Very few human trials have been conducted on most existing steroids, so for most of these compounds, we don't actually know what a safe dose would be. And the one exception to this is, of course, testosterone, which is very well studied. And one of the most popular steroids today, trenbolone, was originally developed for beefing up livestock and has never been tested on humans or even used on humans in any setting other than clandestinely. So what we know about this and many other anabolic agents is largely based off of anecdotal knowledge being passed around between users. Now, in 1989, uh, an author by the name of Daniel Duchesne wrote a book called The Underground Steroid Handbook, and that for many years was one of the only high-quality sources of information, and that book sort of became the stuff of legend as it was secretly passed around between gym bros and bodybuilders like sacred religious text. The reality on the ground was that most people who were using were just using whatever they could get their hands on and whatever quantities were recommended by their dealers. 
Meanwhile, mainstream pop culture continued to push forward massive muscular bodies. We had shows like the American Gladiators, and we had the WWE and WWF, and and more recently we have the complete domination of the film industry by these massive intellectual property franchises based on supernatural bodies, literally supernatural bodies. And we've witnessed male actors pack on serious muscle to play these characters. And then in sports, we get a succession of public doping scandals, including the baseball home run record scandals of Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and the downfall of cyclist Lance Armstrong. And most recently, there was the multi-year disqualification of the entire Russian Olympic team for cheating drug tests. And these scandals kept the public consciousness of the drugs anchored to the idea that they were being used to cheat in sports, when the reality is, and was, that the average steroid user performs and looks nothing like a professional athlete. Gradually, with the rise of the internet ever heard of it, steroid knowledge moved out of the underground and began to coalesce on the popular bodybuilding forums beginning in the 2000s. Users began to share their compounds, dosages, and cycles, and what developed was a culture of bro science where people could become self-described experts via the information they collated and their own personal trial and error. And eventually these conversations moved off of the forums and onto social media with sites like Reddit and YouTube. And that brings us up to today. It doesn't take long for the average person to poke around the internet and very quickly find advice on steroid usage and often suppliers as well. And I'm not going to mention any suppliers by name, but I found a bunch without really trying. And indeed, that is where most people are currently getting their drugs. So who is using in 2024? Best estimate I could find was that between 3 and 4 million Americans have used anabolic steroids, and 98% of those people were men. Now, please note that this is all-time usage and not current usage, so it's unlikely that 3 to 4 million people are using right now at this very time. So just doing a little approximating here, based on the current male population over the age of 15, uh, I'm getting a usage percentage between 2.2% and 2.9% of the population who have used at some point in time. Again, these are not current users. These are just people who have used. In comparison, about 50% of all Americans over the age of 15 have ever used an illicit drug, with marijuana by far being the most common at 45.7% of all Americans. Meanwhile, uh, 14.2% of all Americans have used cocaine, 10.2% have ever used LSD, 7.4% uh, have used MDMA, 5.6% have used meth, and 2.3% have used heroin. So anabolics are used about as frequently as heroin, uh, half as much as meth, and less than one-sixth of cocaine, all of which are significantly more dangerous. And globally, it looks like the rate of lifetime usage is about 6.4% for men, which is certainly much higher than it is here in the States. And I'm not quite sure, yeah, where they're getting that, but uh, it's in a study, so it must be true. 
As for gay men specifically, one study in Australia and New Zealand found that 5.2% of gay and bi men had used steroids. Meanwhile, a study of San Francisco's Castro District found that 21.6% of the respondents had used steroids. Now, the Castro is not representative of the average queer male population, so we can't use that to draw general conclusions, only that we can say it seems that gay and bi men are more likely to use steroids than their straight counterparts. One study I found said that queer men were 5.8 times as likely than straight men to use anabolics. So applying the numbers I gave before means that we're looking at maybe 13 to 17% of American gay and bi men who have used steroids. And that's my extrapolation. That is not an official statistic. Now, most people who use steroids probably aren't using them for years and years and years. They're maybe experimenting and doing a few cycles, but I can't find any stats to back this up. So this is an area for a potential study if someone's listening. But we definitely need to say that the negative health consequences are generally cumulative. So long-term users are at a more significant risk. Now, culturally, when people picture the average steroid user, they probably think of a teenage athlete or a professional athlete, but that's definitely not who the average user is. According to a study of almost 2,000 anabolic steroid users from the United States, only 11% were concerned with athletic performance, and 81.8% of respondents didn't even play sports in high school or at all. And only 15.5% has ever competed in a bodybuilding show. Most respondents were looking to just build muscle size and strength, and they wanted to look as good as possible. This study found that the average user was 31.5 years of age and that the average age of first usage was 25.81 years old. Notably, 94% of users didn't start using until they were over the age of 18, and also 88.5% of users were white. And this, this study was conducted via the internet, so it's possible there's a bit of a sampling bias there, in that if you were to get true statistics, there would be more non-white users, but we don't know that, so we can only go off the data we have. Um, now, again, according to the study, more than 74% of users had completed advanced schooling beyond high school, and users hold, held bachelor's degrees at twice the rate of the general population. Moving up the educational levels, more steroid users had master's degrees, doctorate degrees, and professional degrees, such as JDs and MDs. 77.7% held full-time jobs, with 76% earning over $40,000 a year in 2007 dollars, which would be closer to $58,000 in today's money, which isn't a ton of money, but that's still like a pretty reasonable middle-class income, depending on where you live and your spending levels uh, also reported that more than 50% of respondents were single and had never been married. Maybe these people were queer. I don't know. And perhaps unsurprisingly, 72 point, uh, 70.2% of respondents considered themselves perfectionists. 
So users are overwhelmingly white and middle or upper middle class, educated and employed, very much not the profile of the average user of other illegal drugs, except perhaps cocaine to some extent. But this profile, single, educated, professional, also matches that of the average young white cis gay man. And of course there are outliers, but we're literally talking about men who look exactly like myself, a 39-year-old single white gay man with a master's in business, and probably looks like a lot of you as well. Interestingly, this survey also looked at what compounds people were using and what their weekly dosages were if they were using testosterone. So by far the most popular compound used was testosterone. 78% of respondents had said that they used that. Next most popular was Dianabol with 64.9%, followed by uh, Decadurabolin with 63.5%, then Winstrol at 56%, Equipoise at 53.9%, and Trenbolone at 51.3%. And users also were allowed to rate which ones they thought were most effective. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they rated testosterone as nearly a five out of five. I think they gave it a 4.8 and the second most effective was trenbolone according to them. And I think they gave that like a 4.3 or something. And I don't know that they were asking if this is what people were currently using. It sounds like maybe they were asking like what they had used at some point in time. So I don't think that like people were using all of this stuff at once, although it is certainly possible that a lot of these people were using more than one compound simultaneously. They also found that the average length of usage was 5.53 years and that the average user uh, used for four to six months out of the year. So bros be cycling, but we knew that. And we don't have doses for all of the compounds, but we do have it for testosterone. So the average weekly dose was 797.5 milligrams, which is, which is definitely a lot. Um, but the highest reported doses were more than 5,000 milligrams. Um, but you know, for reference, that's like two entire vials a week. Um, that being said, 58% of respondents were using less than 600 milligrams a week, which we know from the testosterone studies that 600 is the maximum dose shown to be safe. So most users are still being somewhat responsible in their usage. All right, so where are these drugs coming from? As I mentioned, some of these drugs are still available by prescription and still manufactured for the U.S. market. There are also prescription-quality medicines available in other countries that can be imported. Thailand and Mexico are popular places to go because they are legal there and readily available. But, of course, importing drugs puts people at considerable legal risk, and border agents are very on the lookout for drugs. So I don't advise that. More likely, these drugs are obtained from underground labs or UGLs. The raw ingredients are imported from China as powders and then mixed with oils to create injectable solutions. Or they're combined with other inert ingredients and pressed into pills in small labs which are hidden often near the border. 
And I watched a few interviews with dealers, including a really good one in a recent Vice documentary where they were talking through this process. And it seems relatively simple with some basic chemistry experience, which of course I don't have, but uh, the dealer interview definitely highlighted that many people in the game don't have chemistry experience and aren't handling their chemicals properly, especially a lot of smaller time dealers who are just importing the raw chemicals. Um, and the quality and dosage strength vary from supplier to supplier. And much of it is honestly fairly good because the ingredients are cheap, but of course, not always. According to one study of over 5,000 samples of black market steroids, 36% were counterfeit or had no active ingredients. So basically a little bit more than a third. And a further 37% were of substandard quality, meaning that they were underdosed. There are test kits you can buy on the internet. There are also some labs that you can send samples to, but it's hard to know exactly how accurate these tests are. So it may be worth it to test your drugs if you suspect them of being inferior quality. Um, it's also very common to pass off one cheaper steroid as another more expensive steroid. For example, primabolin and Anavar are considered fairly safe, but usually demand a really high price point. So a lot of what is labeled primo is actually Masteron, while a lot of things labeled Anavar are actually Dianabol. And People traditionally purchased just from dealers that they would meet at the gym, and this meant that they were very limited to whatever compounds the dealers had available. But currently, because it's much more likely that people will purchase from an online source and pay using crypto or wire transfer, that the quality is often very high compared to dealers. And as I mentioned before, you can find any number of websites advertising these compounds for sale. And surprisingly, most of them are legitimate. Not all, of course, but because of the culture of bros on the internet, it is very easy to get recommendations for which sites are actually good. And there's also literally a site that aggravates reviews and ranks the sites by quality. And again, I'm not going to give that out, but you can find it. I'm sure you can. Um, so with this blatantly highly visible sales network happening in plain sight, you might wonder why the Drug Enforcement Agency Agents aren't going after them. Well, they actually have, and in 2015, there was a massive action by the DEA, that's the Drug Enforcement Agency here in the States, called Operation Cyber Juice, which sounds so fucking stupid. Uh, and that led to the arrests of over 90 people and the seizure of 16 different underground labs. Uh, but this operation was not met with public praise, with many people commenting that it was a waste of the very limited drug enforcement resources to go after steroid suppliers. And while the DEA highlighted the raid as part of an anti-doping campaign in sports, we know from the available data that competitive athletes are not the primary users of these drugs. Since then, the DEA has not done any major actions, and it seems likely that their appetite for enforcement has waned as their attention has largely shifted to the fentanyl crisis, and rightly so. So, when we talk about drugs and the law, it is often viewed through a framework of societal harm. 
However, when it comes to steroids, that harm has been greatly exaggerated. To be clear, there are serious risks to individual users, which I'm about to go over. But this is not a class of drugs that generally impacts societies beyond the health of individual users. So let's talk about the risks, starting with some of the more innocuous ones and then progressing to the more serious ones. And again, I did cover a lot of these in the testosterone episode, so this might be a bit redundant for some of you. All right, first risk we're going to talk about is hair loss. So testosterone converts to another form called DHT, and other steroids are directly derived from DHT, and this is the chemical that is largely responsible for male pattern hair loss. And my understanding from users is that if you are prone to baldness already, then steroid use will likely accelerate the process. But if you're somebody who is not prone to baldness, it probably won't have this effect. Again, this is anecdotal. Uh, but that's what I've heard. So this is one reason why you might want a to wait a bit before starting, among many others. A, another risk is increased body hair, and it's often said that the hair you lose from your head migrates to other parts of your body. So you might suddenly have back hair or thicker chest hair. And this may not be a bad thing for a lot of people. Uh, similarly, steroids lead to masculinization, and that's in addition to body hair, your voice can also deep, deepen and other gen changes generally in line with becoming more masculine. For femme people, this may be an undesirable side effect, but for trans and non-binary people assigned female birth, this may actually be a benefit. Sorry, as I was recording this, I just had one of those burps that contain a bit of stomach acid, and I'm just trying to get it out of my mouth, but it's just right there in the back of my throat. God damn it, it's annoying. Anyway, the next risk we need to talk about is what it does to your libido. So for most people, steroids increase their sex drive. Most notoriously, trend makes people seek out sex constantly and often in ways that they wouldn't have previously pursued. And I've seen some posts from straight guys on Reddit freaking out because they take trend and suddenly start being attracted to trans women and they're worried they might be gay now. Which is, of course, ridiculous because trans women are women, so being attracted to them doesn't make you gay. Cut that shit out. That being said, because steroids generally also raise your estrogen level, sometimes if that estrogen level gets too high, it can kill your sex drive and your ability to get an erection. Uh, then some people will then take a bunch of aromatase inhibitors to stop the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, and then this will crash their sex drive by not having enough estrogen. So ideally, your estrogen needs to be in balance with your testosterone levels. Another side effect we need to talk about is acne. So DHT also plays a role in oil production in our skin. So this is why a lot of people develop acne. Acne on the back is a pretty telltale sign that someone is using. And this is another good reason why young people might want to avoid using. And you definitely see some influencers who are young and using who are just covered in severe systolic acne. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's unfortunate for sure. <laughs> Uh, another side effect we need to be worried about is gynecomastia, and this is basically the development of man boobs. Because some testosterone is converted into estrogen, which we've already said, men with a lot of testosterone will convert more of it to estrogen, which can lead to the growth of breast tissue. And obviously, this risk grows with increasing dosages, so people who use steroids also often take another medication such as tamoxifen or anastrozole to block this conversion process. And this is a good reason to keep doses fairly conservative as most people using for aesthetic reasons probably don't want to develop breasts that they then have to get surgically removed. And I've also heard that a lot of competitive bodybuilders have to get gynecomastia surgery um, as a preventative measure in a lot of cases. Another side effect is water retention and bloating, and estrogen can basically lead to those things. So this might cause you to look artificially inflated or swollen, and in some cases, the drugs that are used specifically for bulking, might uh, you might actually find that what you thought was added muscle was actually just water mass that goes away as soon as you stop taking the compound. Um trying to remember which one this is most common for but yeah some of the quote-unquote bulking steroids that lead you to gain a lot of weight quickly as soon as you stop taking them the weight comes back off because it wasn't actually muscle it's just water another side effect we need to note is testicular atrophy and uh that's uh, because your body is receiving testosterone from outside the body, it will stop making it naturally, and so your testicles will start to shrink. Most men will see a 30 to 50% reduction in testicular size with continued use, but they do generally return to full size with proper medication after discontinuing, and the two drugs that people use to return normal testicular function are Clomid and HCG. Another possible concern is reproductive difficulty, and because your testicles shrink, they also leads to you generally producing less sperm, which can lead to potential infertility, and that's probably not an issue for most of my listeners, but again, uh, it might be. I don't know. I don't know your fucking journey, but in most cases, fertility can be restored by using those two drugs that I've already mentioned. Then we got to talk about the risk of addiction. Um, steroids are not physically addictive in the traditional sense, but because they shut down natural production, if people stop using them, they will probably experience a dramatic crash uh, if they don't use post-cycle medications to restart production of testosterone nat naturally or transition to a standard TRT protocol. So this crash can lead to a lot of people resuming usage, similar to how withdrawals might work in other more physically addictive substances. And to me, this reminds me of Death Becomes Her, where Isabella Rossellini's character gives the potion of eternal life to Meryl Streep, but warns her that she has to take really good care of herself. So, like, if you're going to go down this route, you need to have a plan in place for how you're going to come off these drugs, as well as an awareness of all these other possible risks so you can be proactive about them. 
Another uh, possible concerning side effect here is tendonitis and muscle tears. So when you're on steroids, your muscles will grow significantly faster than your connective tissue that supports these muscle muscles and attaches them to your bones and stuff. Whereas normally your tendons become the limiting factor for how much weight you can lift, on steroids you can suddenly lift much more weight and it becomes very easy to injure or rupture your tendons. It's almost a rite of passage for guys who use trenbolone to rupture a bicep tendon or a pec tendon. So if you start experiencing pain in your connective tissue, that means that you need to deload or take your weight back. Don't continue to push unless you're sure that you can pay for surgery and afford the downtime necessary for recovery if you get injured like this. And that might be a matter of months. All right, so now let's uh, start getting into some of the more frightening side effects. Uh, The first one I want to talk about is mood disturbances. So We all know about the cliche of developing roid rage. In in fact, one of Ben Affleck's earliest acting roles was in an after-school special where he plays a high school football player who starts taking uh, testosterone. I don't know. Well, he's whatever. He starts taking he starts taking steroids and he gets roid rage. And look it up. It's a fun. It's a fun little watch from memory lane. And does this actually happen? Well, it turns out not really. So yes, testosterone can make you more aggressive, but the consensus amongst users is that it just heightens whatever your natural inclinations are. So if you are someone who is easily angered, then steroids will make that worse. But if you are someone who is generally peaceful, then you're not going to suddenly turn into the Hulk or whatever. Now, in some cases, steroids can trigger mania or even psychosis. And I swear the internet is gaslighting me because months ago I saw a study that showed a pretty high incidence of hypomanic symptoms in people on high doses of testosterone. But now I can't find it, and everything I can find says it's rare, so we'll go with that data. Um, I did find one study where they gave men 600 milligrams a week and found that 84% of participants had minimal psychological effects, 12% became mildly hypomanic, and 4% became markedly hypomanic. So I think if you're someone who has experienced bipolar disorder or is dealing with an intense mental health condition, then steering clear of anabolic agents is probably a good idea, or at the very least being very conservative with your dosage. And a known side effect of many of the stronger agents, most notably trembolone, is very, very poor sleep quality, with a lot of people experiencing night terrors. Uh, Because sleep is so essential for recovery and growth, to me this feels really counterproductive. I know for me, if my sleep is off like two nights in a row, I start to get really fucked up. So anything that negatively impacts my ability to get decent sleep consistently is a hard no for me. Now, to blow up my own spot here, that's right, I'm going to admit to something. Uh, 
I am someone with some occasionally severe mental health issues, and I found that testosterone doesn't really make me feel hypomanic, maybe very mildly, but very manageably. But the two times I've tried taking a modest dose of a DHT derivative, uh, it made me feel very hypomanic, and not in a fun, productive way. So it may be that for me, DHT is the thing that sets me off. On the other hand, uh, numerous studies have shown that low testosterone and severe mental health issues go hand in hand. So is it better to be on some test and a little hypomanic or on nothing and barely functional? I think the answer is pretty clear to that. Next scary side effect we're going to worry about is liver damage, particularly uh, oral steroids are predominantly processed by the liver. Uh, So most oral agents are extremely toxic on the liver and can cause irreversible liver damage. If you don't know, your liver is not an organ that really repairs itself. And Dianabol is pretty notorious for this. And this is why orals are only ever recommended for short-term use. Anavar is the only oral that doesn't seem to cause liver damage, but it can cause kidney issues. So this too is only recommended for short-term use, usually six to eight weeks. And since your black market Anavar might actually bait Dianabol anyway, it's just a good idea to keep these cycles short. So it is counterintuitively safer to inject. But there, of course, are also injection risks. Obviously, if people are sharing or reusing needles, there is a significant risk of infection. But going back to our survey of users, 99% of respondents said they never shared needles or vials, and only 0.7% admitted to reusing needles. So 7% of users reported ever having an infection, which is not nothing, but compared to other injectable drugs, there seems to be much less risky behavior occurring. All right, now we're getting into the the real shit, as they say. All right, the next risk we're going to talk about is elevated blood pressure, and taking steroids definitely elevates your blood pressure. Studies say by an average of 8 to 10 points, and in some people, particularly if their blood pressure is already high, this could be very dangerous. So if, say, you can go from being borderline high to fully high, or from hypertensive stage 1 to stage 2, uh, this is why you see a lot of guys who are on a lot of stuff look bright red all the time, and it's because their blood pressure is too damn high. And high blood pressure causes kidney damage, damage to your eyes and other organs, and can lead to a stroke, aneurysm, or heart disease. Buying a blood pressure monitor and taking medication if necessary is a good move if you're going to use. Next, a negative effect on a similar vein is cholesterol. Anabolics also alter your blood lipid levels. They raise your bad cholesterol and lower your good cholesterol. In one study of a bodybuilder, that they found his HDL, or good cholesterol, had dropped by over 90%, and his LDL, the bad one, had raised by over 50%. Now, after he stopped using, his levels did return to the normal range, but we do have to wonder if continued usage would lead to plaque buildup in the arteries. 
And also of note here, corticosteroids have a lot of the same negative effects. So drugs like prednisone will also elevate your blood pressure, cholesterol, and lead to psychological issues. And uh, another story here, my own personal admission. As a kid, I had a corticosteroid shot that caused me to hallucinate, which is fucking terrifying when you're nine years old. Uh, Second to last, we're going to talk about heart damage in general. So the increases in blood pressure and cholesterol can lead to heart damage, but more terrifyingly, the use of steroids can cause the muscles of the heart to enlarge, particularly the left ventricle. Uh, Prolonged steroid usage can cause the heart to enlarge by as much as three times its normal size. When bodybuilder Dallas McCarver died at the age of 26, his autopsy revealed his heart weighed 833 grams, whereas the average human heart weighs 300 grams. And then another famous bodybuilder who died suddenly, Rich Piana, had a heart that weighed 670 grams, so more than twice the average size in both cases. Now, to be clear, both of these men were using way more steroids than the average person would. But it sure sounds like people are dropping from steroids all the time. So how deadly are steroids? One study in Denmark looked at this, and they followed up with people who had tested positive for anabolic agents three years afterwards. And on average, they found that 1.3% of the people had died, compared to 0.4% for a control group that did not test positive. So this meant that steroid users were three times more likely to die than non-users during that period of time. And while this sounds bad, definitely. Uh, however, firstly, we, uh, need to recognize that correlation does not equal causation. So people likely to take steroids are also more likely to take other risks leading to accidental deaths, including the use of other drugs. This is already established. So we can't say for sure that the steroids was the thing that killed them only that it meant that they were just more likely to die during that period. Another study looked at suspicious deaths in the United States in the period between 1990 and 2012 and were able to identify 19 deaths where all other causes of death had been ruled out. So 19 deaths in 22 years in the United States. Meanwhile, during the same period, overdose deaths from all other drugs rose from 16,849 in 1999 to 41,502 in 2012. And remember before when I said that the U.S. has about the same number of heroin users as anabolic steroid users? During the same time period, from 1999 to 2012, there were 2,000 times as many deaths from heroin. Again, a drug that was being used at about the same rate. And this is these are deaths from just heroin, not um, not deaths from other opioids or a mixture of heroin and other opioids, such as fentanyl. Also, during this period, antidepressants were responsible for almost 38,000 overdose deaths, which is, again, 2,000 times more deaths than steroids during the same period. So drugs that are generally considered safe and very commonly prescribed had 2,000 times more overdose deaths than anabolic steroids. 
Which is not to say that steroids are completely safe. They are not. And of course, 19 deaths is still 19 deaths. Uh, There are very real risks that anyone using should take seriously. But again, the danger has been greatly exaggerated. And of course, these drugs have positive effects on people or they wouldn't be using them. Uh, Most notably, people use them to gain muscle mass, gain strength, and improve body composition. And this is where things get really murky, because as these drugs have become illegal, or at the very least heavily controlled, most of them have not been studied independently to assess for how they quantitatively change our bodies. So what we have is anecdotes that get passed down and spread around. Certain compounds are said to be better for bulking, and some are said to be better for cutting. Some bloat you, some dry you out. But because people are rarely using these substances by themselves and controlling other variables, it's impossible for us to say what they actually do, or what is safe and what is not a safe dose. And I think this breeds an environment of experimentation where users are more likely to try a bunch of different compounds, often at the same time, in order to get desired results. So here's my position on legalization. And that is this. These drugs are considerably less harmful than other drugs which are easier to obtain, least of all alcohol and nicotine, which are both fully legal. And enforcement is a poor use of limited resources, and we would be better off being able to properly study these compounds rather than experimenting on ourselves. And the primary reason that they've been made illegal is to control their usage in sports when most users aren't participating in sports at all. And by all means, keep them banned in sports. It won't stop people from trying to use them and get away with it, but the genie is already out of the bottle. And here's the thing about sports performance. The people at the top of any given sport didn't get there because they were using steroids. They got there because they had natural talent, good genetics, and the right support and coaching and worked at it. If they added steroids into the mix, it was only likely to give them a very slight improvement or extend the length of their careers. Because steroids don't turn you into a super soldier. They're not a magical potion that you take once and balloon up. You don't rip off all your clothes in the process. They work slowly, and they work best in the presence of high-volume workouts with progressive overload, good nutrition, and good stress management. Now, there are two other types of steroid-like drugs we haven't talked about, and I'm just going to cover them briefly because you may encounter them in the wild and be tempted by them. The first one is uh, Selective Androgen Receptor Modulators, or SARMs, and these are drugs that are meant to work on only some of your androgen receptors. So an ideal SARM would probably be one that works on the androgen receptors in your muscles, but does not work on the ones in your reproductive organs. Or even more ideally, one that works on your skeletal muscles only so you don't end up with a risk of enlarged heart muscles, uh, enlarged colon muscles. (laughs) Imagine just a super bulked colon. And you can usually get these SARMs online, and they usually come with a name that's some seemingly random combination of letters and numbers, like MK773 is one, 
And many people look at these as quote-unquote legal steroids because they're not technically illegal in the United States and most other Western countries. But the reason they're not illegal is because they're being sold labeled as research chemicals and not for human consumption because they've never been approved for human usage by any major governing body. The FDA has never approved any SARM for human usage, uh, except Clomid and HCD, which... Now, it would be pretty awesome if these proved effective, but at the moment, we just don't have enough volume of evidence that they work. And anecdotally, um, most people I've heard from who have used them say that they wish they hadn't or just went straight to testosterone. And the drug approval process exists for a reason. So don't just take things that have not been approved. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look up the drug thalidomide uh, and know that that drug was never approved in the United States for a reason, uh, but it was approved in Europe and the results were disastrous. The other class of drugs I need to mention are peptides, and the two that you've almost certainly heard of are human growth hormone, or HGH, and the other one is insulin, which are both naturally produced by your body and are generally taken together. Going back to our steroid user survey, we can see that 27.9% of participants reported using HGH and 21.5% reporting using insulin, and another 19.4% that they had uh, reported that they had used IGF-1, otherwise known as insulin-like growth factor, which is a another naturally occurring peptide. These drugs need to be injected daily or even multiple times a day in the case of insulin. So these are a very intense commitment, and these drugs can get very expensive very quickly. So when you hear people spending thousands of dollars on steroids, it's usually because they're taking these peptides. Now, the appeal of these drugs is that they turn you into an absolute aesthetic marvel and can make you grow truly huge, like way more than that your body would naturally allow you. So these are the primary domain of the top-level bodybuilders who are just trying to get as big as possible beyond what their body would normally allow. So HGH comes with a lot of the same risks as steroids, but Insulin is notable because unlike steroids, you can actually easily overdose and die. And maybe in the future, I'll do a dedicated episode on peptides. But for now, we'll just table the conversation. Y'all, it was 55 degrees here today, and I am sat here in jeans and a t-shirt at 8 o'clock at night, and I am sweating, and I don't know what the fuck that's about. Uh, anyway... So now I'm going to wrap this up by doing the controversial thing, and that is advocating for a safer use model and outline what that might look like. And I realize that this may lose me credibility, but I think it's important. Firstly, as I said near the top of this episode, steroids are not appropriate for everybody. They're not even appropriate for most people. Here's a short list of people who might be able to use them. Uh, the first set of people is competitive bodybuilders and strength athletes in non-tested federations. And these are the guys who are going to be heavy users for sure. Uh, the second group of users 
who might be able to use is lifters who have reached their genetic ceiling through years of training, but have a little bit further to go to reach their aesthetic or strength goals. And most of us will fall into this category. And the third group of people is people whose income depends on performance or aesthetics. So pro wrestlers, athletes in sports where they don't care, fitness models, sex workers, etc. Porn stars. Um, and for sure, do not use steroids if you are competing in amateur sports or drug-tested sports. Do not do it. As an anecdote, I know, an anecdote. You're fucking tired. I have been playing rugby for almost 20 years, and a lot of that has been with gay rugby teams. And I'm aware that a lot of the players on the top gay rugby teams in the world are using. And I think that that's kind of sad. And I don't want to be like super judgmental here, but I think like being on the best amateur gay rugby club is an accomplishment, but a very limited one. Like, woohoo, good for you, boo. But nobody is watching this on TV. And I would much more respect you if you were using just to look good. Um, but the reality is, if you are someone who's going to use steroids, you're probably not going to be dissuaded by the risks or the dangers. And I can't really say that I blame you here. The world really feels like it's going to shit most of the time. So why do you care if you die a few years earlier or not? You would probably rather look good now. And that's certainly the nihilist viewpoint, but I can't fault you for thinking that. That is something that certainly goes through my head all the time. And that says more about our society than it does about ourselves. So here is my suggestions for a safer use model. And this is based on me absorbing a lot of content from bodybuilders who are advocating for this. Uh, so just to name these guys that I'm getting this from, we have Victor Black and John Jewett. These are bodybuilders. We have Dark, Dr. Mike Isertel, uh, Mark Bell, who is the brother of Chris Bell, who directed Bigger, Stronger, Faster, and... Dr. Thomas O'Connor, who a lot of these guys have YouTube channels, and I am not an expert, but these men are, or as close as we can get in a subject that can't be legally studied. Um, so here are what they recommend. Number one, wait until you've been working out and eating well for 10 years. When you're young, you're still growing rapidly anyway, and you can gain like 30 pounds of muscle in your first few years of working out. But also, if you've been working out hard for years and not growing, then that probably means you do not have the genetics to get big, and throwing steroids on top of this probably won't make you get much bigger. Uh, we also want to wait a little bit until our brains have matured so we can make fully informed decisions. And these young guys on the internet doing trend in their teens are not an inspiration. Secondly, the dosage determines the risk. Use the lowest effective dose. Now, because we don't know the lowest effective dose for a lot of these medications, it makes sense to start with ones we do know, like 
testosterone. And we know that you can get gains out of a modest dose of testosterone. On that note, thirdly, choose safer compounds. Testosterone is the most widely used because it is the best studied and the safest. The only other steroids tested and approved for human usage are primabolin, anivar, nandrolone, masteron, and provirin. Fourthly, Start simple and small. Don't dose like a professional bodybuilder if you're not a professional bodybuilder. Start with test only and slowly increase your dosage. People will add in a DHT compound if they max out on tests and are starting to get the estrogenic side effects. Um, But you don't need to stack three different compounds. Your first cycle... It's going to be the one with the most gains, and you probably don't need much drugs to see this. After this point, it is only diminishing marginal returns. Fifthly, do not mistake side effects for effectiveness. This is why a lot of people like Trend, because they think that all the shitty side effects is proof that it's working. But why would you actively look to feel like shit for months at a time? Sixthly, orals are only safe for short periods, usually a max of six to eight weeks. Any longer, an organ damage begins to accumulate. Seventh, uh, inject safely and inspect gear visually. So hold your vial up to the light, see if there's any uh, like solids floating around in it. Make sure the liquid should be pretty much clear. Eighthly, get your blood work done. Monitor your lipids, your blood pressure, etc., and take additional medication as needed. Uh, you ideally want to be working with a doctor or provider who you can be transparent with. And I realize that that's hard because a lot of us are really distrustful of the medical providers and find them to be very judgmental at times. So if you can find a gay doctor, they're probably going to be a lot more understanding and possibly more likely to have used. Um, ninthly, Leverage food and rest. If you're not eating right and you're not sleeping right, you're not going to grow no matter how much you inject into you. If you start to plateau, add calories to your diet before you add more drugs. And 10th and finally, stay off the forums and Reddit threads because people on the internet have some wild, uninformed opinions. Pay them bitches no mind because they'll be out here, uh, because they'll be out here advocating for you to take wild doses to achieve any results. And that's just demonstrably untrue. All right. That's it. Those are my 10 points for safe steroid usage. Again, not saying you should do that. I'm just saying if you are going to do it, please follow this. Uh, Well, uh, that should wrap it up. This was a really long talk from my perspective. I knew the script was like 7,000 words. Hopefully I got through it quickly and uh, painlessly. And I appreciate you for listening. Uh, A few things more before we go. Uh, If you can, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or review. That really helps me out to get more listeners. Um, You can also follow my Instagram page and my Threads account, which is at GabroShit. And you can also share this podcast with people that uh, you love or like or loathe even. Anyone you think might be interested. 
And that's going to do it for me. Sorry if my voice still sounds like shit. Uh, Definitely hard time getting through all of this content today, but we did it. And I appreciate you for listening. And I will see you back here in a few weeks for some more bullshit. Uh, Until then, have a good night, bros. That's why we're living it up at the Butt Sex Discord.